Welcome back to the Athlete Hackers Podcast. My name is Chris Schrade. My name is Mark Spellman. And before we introduce our next esteemed guest, let's go over our last uh, podcast with Leanne Blinn. Uh, major takeaways for me was um, the stopping of early specialization with youth athletics. And then once again, something that we really honed on with a lot of our guests, the ability to get to know your athletes before you coach your athletes. So know them first and foremost as a person, and then you'll have that buy-in and that relationship that you need in order to coach them as an athlete. Yeah, uh, that podcast will be, in, uh, all of our podcasts will be in, are always, always fun and entertaining. She's a straight shooter and has got a lot of information, but, um, you know, we had a follow-up podcast to that, which has not been posted just yet, but we dove a little deeper on this. Uh, basically, we have the theory of if you have youth athletes, bringing them through multiple sports when they're young, young so they have different ranges of motion so that they um, develop uh, you know, those ranges of motion so they avoid repetitive injuries but easier said than done. And I am experiencing that firsthand here in California. If you want to hear about that, I'll post that one soon. It's not up yet. You're going to have to. <laughs> Without further ado. What a teaser. What a teaser you are. I know. <laughs> Without further ado, this has been over a year in the making. Um, as the gentleman can attest to, that is our guest. I will stalk you with the best of them. Um, <laughs> Uh, probably not as good as a, uh, as a hunter as himself or some of our other guests that we've had on, but I will definitely stalk you until I get you on the show. It is my honor. It is my privilege to have the one and only Bo Sandoval on our program today. Coach Bo, what's going down in College Station? Wow, Mark, man, thank you for that, that intro. I'm, I'm about as excited as I've been the entire month of February. <laughs> witnessing this bipolar weather down here in college station so right, that got me jazzed up i appreciate that that uh, shit you want to talk bipolar i'm in connecticut two two days ago it was 60 today we have four inches four inches of ice on the ground yeah yeah we uh we were participating in a uh, habitat for humanity build two days ago in 85 degrees and i was concerned about passing water around to some of our our front office personnel that are in their 50s and 60s and like you guys are gonna you're gonna suffer for some heat exhaustion we got to keep you hydrated and then a day later we got ice on the roads and it's 31 degrees so it's uh it's definitely bipolar down here but there is no such thing as global warming so <laughs> <laughs> for those for those individuals that are listening Bo give us give us the rundown of who you are, where you are, how you got to where you are, and all the different stops along your journey. Ooh, I'll uh, I'll try to be <laughs> I'll try to be brief. I uh, Bo Sandoval. I'm the, I'm currently an assistant athletic director over over uh, sports performance here at Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. Um, I started my journey as a strength and conditioning um, student. I'll say first at. Uh, Northwestern State, Louisiana, initially for about a semester and um, through some relationship building and, and getting my feet wet as an equipment manager and as a volunteer strength coach, um, got invited as a, there was a softball coach there that took a position at Southern Mississippi as a head coach, asked me if I would come along to be an equipment manager and they'd be able to help me out with some school stipends and I gladly accepted as long as they could get my foot in the door with the strength staff on the way, on the way there. And they did just that. So I was able to start about a three and a half year internship um, with, with uh, Southern Mississippi then, and then was gracious enough to be extended an offer as a, as a graduate assistant strength coach for two years there as well. Um, from there, I took a, a job as, as a head strength coach at a small Presbyterian school in Jackson, Mississippi at the time was Bellhaven College. They're now, I believe, at Division II University, um, uh, doing pretty well now. Uh, but that kind of got my full-time career going. Pretty awesome for a you know, 24-year-old at the time, 23, 24-year-old. Uh, every coach there was more experienced than me. So to kind of be engulfed in that, I mean, we had a couple of Hall of Fame coaches there. Uh, one in particular, Hill Denson was our baseball coach. He had retired from Southern Miss 
uh, prior to me being a student there, um, he had coached some minor league and, and even some, some major league ball and then got bored and was like, I want to head coach again and came down to Bellhaven. So I got lucky that he was there that entire time. Um, one, for someone to call me boy, and for two, just to, to learn quite a few things along the way. But um, uh, yeah, that was an awesome experience to cut my teeth on. Um, two and a half years later, got hired as a, as a strength and conditioning specialist with the, the U.S. Olympic Committee at their training center in Colorado Springs. Primarily uh, came in as a utility player just to, to help with essentially everything there. They have a variety of genre of sports there. Um, within six months, got a kind of assigned to acrobat and combat sports, which is where I spent basically the next two and a half years, um, primarily with combat sports, wrestling, boxing, taekwondo, judo, fencing, which played a role later on in my recruitment with the UFC. But um, at that time, definitely took a deep dive into weight cutting sports, weight classification sports, such as weightlifting, wrestling, boxing. Um, but then also got to get exposed to more subjective sports like gymnastics, diving, figure skating, which are more of there's a performance aspect, but there's a whole judging criteria that comes along with it. Um, and then from there, I uh, took a position as a, a early on as an assistant strength coach at the University of Michigan in 2009. And throughout my eight and almost eight, eight and a half years there. Um, was able to kind of climb some ladders and, and work my way into an assistant director position there under under Mike Favor. That was an awesome time of growth. We came in at a time where Michigan's uh, resources were kind of at a minimum. They recognized it and they had an administration there to really um, be a catalyst for some growth, both from a headcount standpoint, facility standpoint, and really just trying to upgrade the services they were delivering there at the university. And then um, during that time, uh, the UFC had decided they were going to take an initiative and create their first ever performance institute, which is essentially a health and wellness and performance initiative for, for their fighters, um, which they, they fluctuate between 600 and 700 fighters on their roster globally. And so, um, was invited to, to embark on that little journey in 2017 and thought it was a pretty adventurous thing to be on the ground floor of a sport like that um, with limited research, limited, um, limited long-term development and uh, athlete profiling, data aggregation, all that stuff was kind of at a minimum at that point. If you had researched MMA in 2017, you might find a dozen peer-reviewed articles on how to prepare an MMA fighter for competition. And so while we were an active, yeah, there you go. While we were an active operational performance group, um, sort of the byproduct of our work was generating literature, just like you just held up um, and really trying to establish a better, a better data set for coaches globally to be able to tap into when they had questions around criteria for a fighter. So um, awesome five years there, a little over and, um, and uh, got an opportunity to maybe move the needle a little bit in college athletics. I'm, I'm not, I tell people all the time, I'm not a uh, overwhelmingly positive person with how services get delivered in college athletics all the time. I think it's kind of a pup, it ends up being a little bit of a puppy mill. Um, but uh, there's an initiative here and an administration here that's very keen on not necessarily always doing whatever the rest of the SEC is doing or what the rest of the, rest of the Power Five schools are doing, but instead, trying to formulate an a la carte system of services here that is designed and set up for the context of, of what athletes are going through at our particular institution. Um, so I'm really keen to kind of take that on and, and help with the already incredible, you know, assets in terms of staff personnel and, 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 um, and facilities and things that they have access to here. Um, but then also the sugar on top was, just being closer to family. I'm from the South. My wife's from the South. So here we are, you know, starting my educational journey 22 years ago or so. And we've been able to meet, you know, professional endeavors and also get back closer to home. So that's, that's been a nice little cherry on top. Awesome. There are a lot of things in that, that, need to be addressed <laughs> oh yeah. yeah yeah i got a lot of things too so don't yeah. hog, don't hog it all i'll let you go first because right. I, I guarantee you i'll have some things I, that you don't i'll take that all right so the uh the uh, olympic experience um you know face value you've got 
almost seemingly diametrically opposed uh, uh, athletes, you combat athletes and acrobatic athletes. At least mm -hmm. it seems that way. Um, tell me how that's wrong, but how are they similar? What, what did you experience with that, with that contrast of athlete? Then? Um, <clears throat> similarities are actually easy. They're both human beings. So physiologically, um, they all have requirements around robustness, readiness, trainability. Um, then when you look at, you know, where the really big differences come in is when you look at the criteria of the sport. So in wrestling, um, you look at the breakdown of a tournament or a dual match, um, you know, and what the worst case scenario could be, which would be world championships in Azerbaijan in 2007, um, shitty location, shitty food. I think they were getting hot dogs for lunch, um, you know, stuff like that on top of it's a weight cutting sport. Um, and some of the most dominant teams that we're going to face in the world in, in Eastern, you know, Eastern Europe. And so um, the demands are different. It's a very much, there is judging involved, but it's much more of an objective point scoring type of sport. Whereas you look into gymnastics it is much more an aesthetic um, skill, aesthetic execution based sport that has been subjectively judged. So my eyes determining whether or not that skill would, would, would be good enough for an eight versus an 8.5 or a nine. Um, so uh, not quite as objective. Well, that, that definitely plays a role in um, the preparation aspect from a mental fortitude standpoint, as well as how you're creating robustness to handle the repetitiveness of the skills. So in order for someone to do an iron cross on the rings, for example, um, that is countless hours and repetition of rehearsal of something that not only aesthetically has to pass the eye test of whatever judge so that they can accumulate as many points as possible for that skill. Um, but then the soft tissue uh, abuse and the muscular musculoskeletal abuse that it takes for the repetitious practice and prerequisites for that skill over time. And that's just one skill out of hundreds within different routines. When you look at floor routine or you look at pommel horse or whatever the case may be. Um, so, uh, from a preparation standpoint, you know, a lot of people would think, well, man, a, a uh, wrestler's got to be really robust and they do because they do get belly to belly suplexed and they get in some funky torque positions on single leg takedowns and things along those lines. Um, and the rope equally. So on the gymnast, the robustness, it, it is a necessity, but it's a very different thing. It is a very much so a volume tolerant robustness. Um, and typically you can be much more calculated in it, meaning I know exactly kind of what they're going to, unless they make an error and they step incorrectly or something along those lines, I know what the overuse kind of tendencies look like. Whereas in wrestling, they shoot those single legs and those ankle picks and those elbow drags. They're doing those things from different angles, different levels of pressure. Um, you know, you get some of the bigger bodies in there, the, the level of torque and the level of force that's being put um, on a, on a joint that's already at a leverage disadvantage, that, that's a different type of robustness. Um, and so the training- Did I hear requires, you that, that it's easier to spot weaknesses in someone like a gymnast because of the precision that they have to have? I wouldn't say it's easier to spot weaknesses. I would say it's easier to be proactive to uh, install systems for integrity because you kind of know what the positions are going to be in wrestling has this little thing called a scramble. <laughs> and during a scramble is when about 90% of catastrophic injuries happen, not only in wrestling, but in MMA as well. So the, movement, those are the movements are more predictable in, in, in the acrobatics. Yes, sir. 100%. Um, again, you can't account for false steps or missteps or, you know, things like that. But in terms of the, the routine things, it's, this person controlling themselves in space, we can be very predictable about how we handle that. When I've got another human being trying to impose their will on me, then I got some things that are out of my control as well. Um, so that those nobody's, are some nobody's of Nobody's shooting. Nobody's shooting a double on a vault. No, no. <laughs> but yeah. I think that that might be something we want, might want to look into. That that could make that much more entertaining could make for a spectator sport that's for sure <laughs> um you know those are some of the easy low-hanging fruit in terms of differences um in terms of similarity they're both you mentioned the word precision they're both very much precision sports 
Um, this day and age, wrestling is becoming way more calculated. It used to be a hustle sport. You could just hustle your way through it, outwork a guy, the old Dan Gable mentality. Um, you could just drown someone in your effort. Well, this day and age, everybody works hard. They, uh, the level of uh, grind is they're all doing it. Back then, not everyone knew how to grind like, like an Iowa did. Um, nowadays, especially when you look into like, you know, countries like Cuba, Eastern Europe, um, and even some of the APAC region countries now, their consistency in training and their toughness around training, um, the hustle factor is about equaled out. Well, what it's boiling down to is precision. You know, what, what is your level of precision and when you, how you strategize and set up a takedown or a counterattack? Um, how precisely you can change levels and close distance at the same time or change levels and create space for a defensive maneuver at, at the same time. Um, the level of precision has gone up. Now, a sport like gymnastics, um, precision is a no-brainer. I mean, you can see it when you see them perform compared to when you see someone re recreationally grab a hold of a pull-up bar at a local, you know, playground outside. It looks very different um, from the moment their hands touch it, their posture, their hollow body position, toes are pointed, everything is streamlined. Um, so the precision aspect is something that not only um, we tried to target in preparation and training and mindset when, when it came to them, but it's something that's carried over even to today. So an MMA fighter, and even right now, I'm helping out with the men's golf team at Texas A&M. That's a precision sport. And so, so it's not that the golf team needs to be swinging kettlebells around all the time, but regardless of what the implement is, a barbell, kettlebell, they should be addressing it with a certain level of precision, which I think sometimes gets left by the wayside with strength and conditioning coaches. It's how many can you do? How heavy did you do it? How fast did you do it? we got devices now that will measure how fast you did it. Um, but in a lot of cases, we've lost the sense of quality control and precision around the movement. Um, and for sports like that, that can have a dramatic carryover. If you have someone that's trying to be ultra precise on the putting green in terms of their setup, their setup, their breath count, um, setting the head of the club, practice swings, and then adjusting, they almost look like a hydraulic. They look like a, a robot as they move into position to actually tap the ball. But yeah, when they come in here to grab, to do a dumbbell bench press, it's just like dumbbells moving around, flying around. There's no precision in the setup. There's no precision in the breathing and bracing. Um, how many times have you heard, hey coach, how many am I doing? There's not even a precision in the thought process of how they're about to approach a set um, or attack a goal around repetition. So um, just those little tidbits around precision, I think that can carry over into any sport, but specifically talking about something like gymnastics, um, there should be precision in every little, you know, step movement millimeter that they adjust something because all of those millimeters are fractions of a point, which are valuable when you're competing in the upper echelon of the world in terms of competition, everybody's scraping for those fractions of points. So um, now in terms of the, the easy stuff, like, you know, yes, there's a requirement around power and explosiveness and stretch shortening cycles. And there's a, a, a necessity around force production and strength. Um, there's, there's definitely some boxes to check criteria in terms of um, overuse areas to be aware of, wrestling, necks and shoulders are big. Um, gymnastics, shoulders, lumbar, low backs, um, ankles, you know, they're always running around on soft surfaces in gymnastics and fatigue um, seems to play a factor in terms of how uh, responsive they are at landing on those soft surfaces. And when it's not responsive, bad things happen. Um, so, you know, that, that's, the, that's your normal sports stuff, right? Those, those are the normal things that you would address that with a football player where, Where's, where do we need to create robustness around the overuse areas? Um, and then where are the requirements for strength and power um, and capacity for what their job is? So you look at, you know, um, say a, a, um, the periods in collegiate wrestling versus intercollegiate, or sorry, international wrestling, the periods, the timeframes, even the weigh-in times are a little bit different. Same day weigh-ins, different day weigh-ins. In gymnastics, looking at the length of a routine, a floor routine compared to a pommel horse routine, there are capacity requirements on where they need to have a certain level of muscular and both anaerobic, aerobic qualities to their energy systems so that they can maintain their skill set 
at high levels of effort throughout whatever their duration of competition is. Um, those are all normal. Those are factors we should be taking in with every sport. What's the capacity of it? Something like golf, people, well, a golf swing takes, you know, half a second. It's like, yeah, but he's walking on a course for four and a half hours. So there, there is a capacity component to him being able to repeat those skills consistently over and over and over again. Um, so outside of that, you know, those, those are things that we see in, in every sport. It's the uniqueness around some of the weight cutting aspect, the precision judging and the precision approach to preparation, I think, from a mentality standpoint that should be considered. But if you wanted to get into just opinionated things, I think that's important in all sports. I, uh, I got a bunch of things off of that. <laughs> First of all, how did the golf, how did the golf player, how did the golf student look at you when you said you have to be precise, as precise with a dumbbell bench press as you are with putting? You know, they, honestly, <laughs> I think it was a breath of fresh air for a lot of them because, okay. um, I don't know that they've ever heard that analogy. They may have, I could be totally off, but um, I'm, there's no doubt in my mind that they have been hammered with like cues and quotations around effort and, and intensity and which those, you still need those things for sure. Um, but when we put a premium on precision, it just gave them a layer of relativity that I don't know that they've had before. Um, and something, you know, when you're coming in here, some days they're in here in the afternoon, some days they're in here at six in the morning. And when you're in here at odd hours and things, because um, they are, they're an early morning sport. A lot of people think, you know, golf is played in the sunshine in the middle of the day, but their warm up rounds, you know, their tee times can start at 745 in the morning. They'll be warming up, you know, on the greens and things at six o'clock. So they're, they're up early. Um, so that, that helps them. Well, when we're in here, seeing as this is a supplemental thing, the mindset is to not always have your golf tea time mindset you know inside the weight room at at six in the morning and so having that idea of you know we're going to treat training as precise as we would treat any swing you would take on the course um, I think that was a breath of fresh air they we get a lot of positive commentary around it um, you know I tell them they're all fight fans so you know they nerd out they want to talk about fighting I have to tell them like hey we're going to wait we'll talk about that after the session we're not talking about that right now um, but what <laughs> I try to dangle the carrot in front of them yeah well what I try to take from it to show them is like when people look at a martial artist they think about like repetition on a heavy bag and how precise right they're they're rehearsing how they do that how they throw feints how they throw a kick how they'll fake a takedown and so in telling them that, I'm like, yeah, you should have a martial approach to how you use your supplemental training for golf or for baseball or for tennis or for whatever it is. Um, if you have a martial approach, you can demand carryover. Don't even worry about sports specificity. You're, the carryover is from a mentality and an approach standpoint. Um, whereas if you're just getting casual repetitions done every day, then don't expect much carryover. Sure, you'll get a little bit of physiological carryover. But let's be honest, these kids are 18 to 22 years old physiological adaptation is about the easiest thing to achieve with this age group you can do the dumbest shit the most uncoordinated stuff the things that make no sense from a, from a periodization standpoint they'll still make progress because they're 18 to 22 years old 17 to 22 years old now take that same process and apply it to a 38 year old male or female and see how far you get without some criteria around precision and how you're doing things it'll be limited um, so with these kids, we'll still get, we'll still get those byproducts of spurts of growth based off their age and training age, but we'll get a bit more because of the precision approach to how they do stuff. Um, so I tell them like, if you pick something up, you better pick it up with a sense of purpose and some premeditated plan on what you're going to do with it. So if you put your hand on a kettlebell, I expect you to pick it up the way a kettlebell should be picked up. If you put your hand on a barbell that's loaded, that hand shouldn't be touching it with raw flesh. There better be some chalk on your hands. You better be ready to approach that as if you're going to do something with it. Same way as if you stepped into an octagon, you better be ready to protect yourself because bad things are going to be flying at you with bad intentions. So there's no casual repetitions. Casual repetitions are built for health clubs. If you want to be casual, go exercise at a health club. If you want to train, show up at 6 a.m. I'll see you there. We'll have a good time. I promise it'll improve your golf game. <laughs> and, and and i think i think because you were able to relate it to their their sport that now the buy-in whatever you tell them they're all in yeah i mean because you were able to take a situation which might have been 
uncomfortable for them or they didn't understand why they were doing it for their act for their given sport and activity and now they you're using the you're using their words in the weight room instead yeah. of instead of jamming your words down their throat to adapt to their sport you've taken their verbiage and their language and moved it over into the weight room so they they now know that the guy that they're working with understands what are the demands for their activity and he's going to program accordingly so they can have more success more robustness and at the end of the day you know be more successful as a human being as well you know it's interesting you say that so as i there you know i was like hey i'm going to help out with the golf team you know i started doing some research looking them up and i saw a video where they break they do a little rah-rah thing and they break right and um their word was details was their word when they broke so i was like oh okay so when we came in that first day I, you're exactly right i stole their language i'm like all right you can't just say it you have to be about it so let me show you the details. And these are the details I expect you to not only um, execute right in front of me, but I expect you to absorb and digest them and be able to regurgitate them on demand whenever you need to. So it's not about just come in and train really precise and well in front of Bo. It's learn these skills, absorb these skills, take these skills with you. Eventually you should be able to train yourself. You don't need to pay someone to train you. Um, you got it for free right now. Use, you know, call me an idiot or call me a genius, but use this guy's IP for the next four years and then take it with you when you're done. Um, there's nothing worse than you spend an extensive amount of time with an athlete teaching them things. Um, and then they come back a year later and call you one day like, what was that thing called? I can't remember what that thing was called that we did. And they, they got nothing. They, they were, didn't remember anything. They were mindless casual zombies that came in, followed a routine and got out. So in all your um, stops and all the places you've been, you haven't had former athletes go, hey coach, can you send me that old workout that we did? <laughs> 100% they do. That what's better is the, the answer they get. That's the best part. Yeah, I, I, whenever they reach out to me, I go, it hasn't changed. It's well, still what I say, oh, what I, you know, if I'm at the University of Michigan, what I ask is, uh, are you enrolled? No, I'm not enrolled. Okay, awesome. Um, I'm about 180 bucks a session if you want to go in person. <laughs> and then if you just want the program, four weeks will cost you about 600 bucks. Um, I'll gladly give it to you. That's my IP. And if you want it, you're going to pay for it. Otherwise, well, and, Michigan will pay for it if you're enrolled. Well, and I think I think from what, what you just said, a lot of uh, strength coaches need to understand that. It's like, because we're in that servitude role as our profession, there still is the ability to be financially secure and make sure that you just don't give everything away for free, you know, because just because of the title that we hold, it's like, listen, like I, I went to undergrad, I went to grad school. I did two internships. I have over 25 years of experience in the field. Yeah. I, if you want to know what I know, it's going to cost you a little bit. There's you a know? difference between service driven and service provisions and slavery. There's a, there's a difference. <laughs> so, um, you know, people try to go down on their shield, you know, with just being this, this almost like, um, uh, like you said, kind of just giving stuff out for free. They're also the same ones that call and they need vent sessions routinely, man. I don't know what to do. I've been mean, giving them for free and now they were, you know, they're abusing me this way, this way. And like, you open that door, you open Pandora's box. Like you have to protect yourself. Your intellectual property is one of the greatest values that we, that we have through all of our experience and all of our education. So, um, and you know, just like any other business, I mean, if a mechanic's like, Hey man, I'll work on your truck for free. What I'll be like, no, you can't work on my truck for free. I'm <laughs> absolutely come do it, man. Do the brakes, do the change the tires, do everything. And while you're um, at it. Yeah. <laughs> While you're at it, I got some gutters that need to be installed on my house. And, yeah. I um, you know, I, I I know the UFC. Sorry that they lost you, but I'm ecstatic that you're back in the collegiate setting because um, it's been kind of the last ten years where I know our profession needs to do better for ourselves um, and each other. I mean, and I'll say each other should be more important than ourselves. I mean, we, you got to take care of yourself, but at the same time, we got to take care of our profession. Um, and I think uh, at first I'd be remiss. Um, you are the second 
NSCA Strength Coach of the Year to be on our podcast. So congratulations mm-hmm. for that award when you're at the University of Michigan. Um, but as you come back into the collegiate setting, what do you see as one of the major obstacles of our profession or, or a couple of them? And how do you think we can do better for our profession? Mm. Deep, you know, <laughs> multifaceted. And uh, I know Chris is, Chris has only got an hour, but uh, I'll go until you tell me to stop. So I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Um, a couple of big ones. And I don't know if obstacle is the right term. Um, definitely in some areas, obstacles. Um, I think in some areas, it's a lack of, of creativity, a lack of innovation. I think a lack of reflection. I think when you get siloed into a certain area, we forget to like step outside and try to find some fresh perspective. Sometimes some people will bring in outsiders to give them some perspective. Uh, I think we're in a lot of cases, especially in a lot of leadership areas, we're scared to do that. Um, And so without those perspectives, it's tough to reflect and give a true evaluation of what it is you're doing and how well you're doing it. Um, it's one of those things like, I'm great. Just ask me, I'll tell you all about it. Right. Um, when there should be advocacy, um, both from our peers and advocacy from, um, direct reports, superiors, whatever you want to call them, bosses. Um, so, and along those lines, so what is it, what are obstacles? I think a big one is leadership. Now, when everyone thinks leadership or they want to go pick up a Jocko Willink book or they want to pick up, you know, some other five-star general. And yes, that, that's part of it. Those are, those, those help cultivate systems and those help us install um, an ethos or at least a code that we want to try to lead by or, or drill by. What I'm referring to is leadership from an administrative standpoint and leadership from an industry standpoint. Um, and the areas that I think the biggest deficits are in that leadership um, kind of fall back on things I've already stated around the lines of creativity and innovation. So what we're limited to are administrators that one, continue to only evaluate and hire based on what has historically been done, which is, uh, hey, coach, do you know someone good? Oh, yeah, you do? Okay, let me give them a call. All right. Hey, what's your, oh, yeah, so-and-so says you're really good. We'd like to give you a job. All right, excellent. So um, that, that's exactly how a lot of administrators were. I've asked administrators, including some of ours here, how would you evaluate a strength and conditioning coach? How do you, how do you evaluate a sport coach for that matter? What, what is it? Um, and it's really simple. It's pretty much like everyone else does it. Wins and losses. Do you keep kids happy? Can you stay within your budget? I mean, that, that really is, are the things that are kind of deal-breaking for someone to retain um, their, their sport. Well, then they don't take a deep dive into systems and you don't need to be an expert and no, they don't have to be a physiologist to be able to evaluate whether or not the stuff that I'm doing holds water or not. Um, but they do need to be able to dive into the details of how I'm establishing service provision, evaluating service provision, and continuing to evolve that service provision. Like they, they should be able to dig into, get nosy with questions around those areas. That can evaluate, that alone will tell you how much time I'm spending during my 40 hour work week, how much time I'm spending outside my 40 hour work week, and how much time I'm doing it interactively with a multitude of parties on campus as I'm cultivating this plan. By answering those questions, you should get some sense, some, some idea of just how involved I am. The level of involvement and what the correlation between that level of involvement and the level of influence looks like will start to paint a picture on, okay, this guy's, he's, he's given everything he can give. He's intellectually, physically, um, emotionally. He's a part of the community. He's a part of the ecosystem. He's not just in a department. Um, evaluate, until evaluations improve, no one can really get a finger on the pulse of exactly what we all do other than saying what everyone does. Right. I know that. I know Bo. He's a good guy. He's a real good guy. Good guy. I get, well, good guys work at McDonald's too, but I don't really know what they do minute to minute either. So, you know, it's, it's really taking evaluation seriously. Um, and until we are able to do that, no one can get real true reflections on what they need to improve on, how they need to expand um, you know, we, Ray, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Rachel Ellsworth we have here at Texas A&M. She's been here for over, over 30 years, 
um, brilliant, brilliant coach and um, huge asset for me here at the time. And over and over again, I, I keep hearing her tell me, um, I just like that you're here because you think differently. You think differently than I do. And I, you know, and so I, it, it, that's resonating with me because then I ask her, I'm like, how many other, you talk to, she talks to a ton of people across the country. How many times do you get that impression where you're like, man, you think differently. I like to, and she's like, not a lot. And I'm like, well, that, to me, that's weird. Like you should be getting some different perspectives from all these different, but it's not, it's, that's why I use the puppy mill mentality. Everyone's kind of doing the same shit over and over again, because they're relying on validity from their neighbor. Oh, my other SEC counterparts doing that. So it's okay. I'll do that. Or my other PAC 10 counterparts doing that, but we'll do that instead of backing up, doing a thorough investigation of what we need. What are the, what are the deficits? Where are the gaps? Now let's engineer and cultivate systems for this particular context around what we need. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, um, I, I'm gonna draw a blank on his name. Um, he's at Laverne University in California. Laverne is this tiny little D2, D3 school. I can't even remember. I spoke at a summer, he reached out one summer and was like, hey man, we have this summit every year. It's kind of small, but would you like to come talk? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, man, hundred <laughs> percent. And so we go down there, it was an awesome little clinic. This dude does that type of investigation, that type of thorough evaluation over every program he has, all of them by himself. He doesn't have assistants. He doesn't have any GAs. He doesn't have, he's got a couple of interns from time to time that are, you know, it's inconsistent when he gets them, but he does it all by himself. And he's been doing this for longer than I have. He's, he's like four or five years older than I am. Um, <clears throat> and the level of individuality that I saw from different teams that came through from football to baseball to soccer that came through that weight room. It was, it was incredible. And then when you asked him about his thought processes on why that prescription was there, he had a system for every, he had a reason and a system for everything. And so, you know, people were like, well, we just don't have the head count or we don't have the wherewithal or we don't have this or that. It, it can be done. It has to be a, a, um, a, a premeditated process of how you establish that. But the other thing that he mentioned that was extremely, it was validating to me, but it was also enlightening to me was to hear how he was evaluated by his coaches and by his, his um, uh, administrators there at Laverne. Um, there were thorough conversations. It wasn't, hey man, evaluate yourself in this five question questionnaire, get that back to me at the end of the week, we'll throw a merit increase at you. Okay, great. You know, it wasn't nothing like that, which is, um, if I had it, I don't have a lot of I don't really have anything negative to say about the UFC other than the fact that um, we explored some different methods of evaluation. Um, and we we eventually, we got set on one, which I love. It just took us a minute to get there. It was a 360 review. So I was getting reviewed by fighters. I was getting reviewed by fight coaches. I was getting reviewed by um, my counterparts on the same level. I was getting report, reviewed by those that report to me and I was getting reviewed by my superiors. So you get a full 360 degree perspective of what is Bo good at and what does Bo need to work on. That's interesting. And, that's really interesting. And so systems like that's exactly the kind of system we're in our infancy of it that I'm, I'm working to install here with our strength professionals at Texas A&M so that they're getting some real life feedback from all directions. And well, then we might like even- you're also, you're also taking out a lot of bias that you would get from each one of those categories. Yes. Well, the other key component, I think, too, though, is to bring out, um, obviously, someone reputable, but an outside set of eyeballs to then help with that review process to say, take a look at our systems, take a look at me as a leader of these systems, take a look at the management style, take a look at, you know, the personnel, and then have, um, you know, a, a um, an itinerary of review for someone who doesn't work here day to day with us um, to give us a perspective. You know, that's obviously got to be selective. That's got to be someone with a, it doesn't necessarily need to be one of my buddies, but it needs to be someone that's highly acclaimed um, that I feel like is fit to be able to do that. Um, so the review process is huge. Now I say that too, because when we go to these companies, national conferences, and you hear some of them, so, you know, our leaders of the industry or whoever gets labeled that, um, these are, these are like sensitive subjects. These aren't things that people openly talk and debate about. I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem that, you know, we're, we'll bitch and complain with the best of them about how administrators don't know what I do for a living. 
this coach has no idea. Why is it my job to upskill this coach and teach him what a strength coach? Because if we're ever going to be effective, then they know how to, they need to know, we need to know how to talk administrator. They don't necessarily need to know how to talk strength coach. Because if I can talk administrator, regardless of the dumbass question that they ask, I will be able to interpret it. And then I can give them, I can deliver an answer in a way that they can understand it. If I start talking physiology and periodization schemes and Bompa this and the George T that, they don't give a shit about that. Why would they? That, they got other things. They got to you know, manage budgets and go to committee meetings and meet with board of regents and stuff like that. So, well, you know, but if I can break down into very domestic terms of coach, this is how I put the effort. This is what the planning process looks like. This is all the information and criteria I've gathered from all these different sources. And this is why. <clears throat> then we can have a thorough strategic discussion on, okay, well, your why is off the mark a little bit, and here's why. Let's chew through that. How do we find another way? Or the why is there. The method didn't quite meet the madness. It's not quite, you know, giving us the result that we want to yield. How do we go about that? And then you start having a strategic discussion. That's called evolution. You know, like, uh, when, when mountains are formed, that shit didn't happen with any rain. A bunch of shit had to fall from the sky and carve that out. You know, it, it takes time. It takes calluses. It takes um, review. It takes friction. Everyone thinks it's supposed to be hunky-dory when you meet with someone and they evaluate you. No, it's got to be critical. It's got to be something you can go back, digest, and chew on and, and come up with a better version of it. And then that's done progressively over time. It's pretty funny how much we coach progression but we don't understand progression when we get feedback, right? It's like, and that's I think weird. I've, I've, I've heard of uh, several uh, universities having an external audit with their sports performance programs. And I think it, I think for a lot of coaches, it terrifies them because they're, you know, the, the old saying, this is the way we've always done it. That's not, that's not a good answer. No, <laughs> no. And, um, and, and, and that external audit, if, 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 like you say, you bring in somebody who's, who, who is esteemed enough and critical enough and knows what a program should look like or how it should feel when you walk into it. Like, if you don't know, if you, if you don't know after the first 30 seconds walking into a facility, what the, um, what, what the ethos of the facility is, then that's a problem. Yeah, that, I think that, that's a big problem. I think what scares a lot of coaches is that they think someone's going to come in and, and, and impose their preference on them, which that, that it's done incorrectly. If that's the case, it's more of, do you have the criteria to be, um, to be bespoke and how you deliver services and here's, and then we had, we decide what's the criteria and you either meet the criteria or you don't. It's not about, you know, do you like, do you prefer box squatting over, you know, front squatting or do you, it's not about any of that shit, the semantic stuff of people fighting over methodologies. It is, do you provide a, an insightful needs analysis? Do you have a way, a method on how you prioritize that needs analysis in some sort of strategic conversation with your coaching staff? Um, and then is what you're, what you're putting out is it executed well are you are you a good enough instructor to take whatever you've devised as a plan and get it into where it is executed with enough efficacy that it's going to yield excuse me some results when they actually do it because yeah i mean a, a clean and jerk is a tremendous it's a great exercise for a whole bunch of different reasons well if your clean and jerk is at about a 30 percent efficacy then who cares? It doesn't matter. You might as well just snap your fingers for explosive explosivity. Like, look, coach, I'm getting more explosive. It's about the same as doing any sort of lift um, in a in a low accuracy manner. So, um, it's more cri what criteria we're looking at. We don't need someone to come in. And I think the word audit also just scares the shit out of people because in the corporate world, if you're getting audited, your ass is in a sling. So. It, um, that, that word, you know, but call it whatever you want, audit, evaluation. Um, a lot of times they think someone's going to come in and impose their preference on them. And that's, it shouldn't be set up like that. That's up to the manager to set that kind of precedent before they ever get there. You meet with the person and then you have a discussion. Here's what I would like you to evaluate. And you have some idea. I also think it's important that you don't have your friends evaluate your program. You can have someone that you're familiar with 
but not a friend. I think that one, that doesn't do anything for your, um, for your rapport with your staff or your administration. Like who cares if your friend thinks you do a great job? Like we, why would they, you know, why would they vote against you? You can bring someone in that you're familiar with that, you know, has a certain level of intellect, but I think you can have someone that's not, doesn't really have a lot of connection to the program or vested interest in you particularly. So you can get some honest answers, some honest feedback and expect red marks on it. Expect that. That's what you want. You want to know where are the gaps at. You're not doing a review for looking for another pat on the back. You're doing it because you want to figure out you've missed something. What have I missed? Someone show me. You know, there's a dark corner. Someone flick a light on it. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to find. Um, so, you know, I think that's even part of the problem as well is how people interpret review, how people interpret suggestions and how people interpret debate. Um, you know, they're well, definitely... once, again, once again, I think it's because a lot of strength coaches are tied to their training methodology. And they, and if, if their methodology gets attacked, they view it as a personal attack. Like you mm -hmm. said, I mean, if you box squat, if you front squat, if you back squat, if you goblet squat, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody's still squatting. Yeah. So, you know, if, if, if the intent you said is like at a 30%, it doesn't matter what you do. Mm -hmm. I mean, but if you do something at a hundred percent, it's going to matter a lot. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. So, I mean, going back to your original question around, you know, <laughs> moving needles or, or, or anything that's kind of an obstacle in, I think leadership and evaluation is a big one. Um, I think autonomy is a big one. I think everyone uh, gives autonomy until it matters. That, that's my perspective of it. And so, um, you know, they, they give autonomy until, um, you know, someone messes up or someone makes a mistake, you know, someone makes a mistake and then it's like, oh, I'm taking that over. You don't, you know, you don't know. That. Whereas, I mean, this day and age, we have, I, I would argue there are a lot of assistant coaches out there, assistant strength coaches, even GAs that are, there's some bright minds. There's some innovative people out there. There's some that have a different perspective that could put um, a spin on things that cause to, to accelerate evolution a little bit, um, but they don't get granted autonomy. Um, and some of the age old excuses, trust, I got to trust that guy. It's like, dude, it's not like you're letting them borrow your wife for a weekend. It's you're, we're talking about training. Like, what are you trusting? Like, are you trusted that he's an accredited professional? You should have already covered that base when you hired him. Like, yep. what, what is it, you know, um, and we, we adopt that culture a lot from sport coaches. Like, oh, well, I got to trust him. It's like, wait a minute. What do you mean you got? I don't need to trust my mechanic. I just need to know that he knows how to work on a fucking engine. Like, that's all I need to know. Whereas, like, for others, you know, they, they, they put so much into the trust that they overlook um, technicality. They overlook, like, qualification like are you able to even do that job or is it just that i trust you and you're, you're good people i know that you won't you know air out all my bad laundry or whatever the case may be um i think that well, gets many, over, over abused quite a bit how many coaches are in our profession haven't made a mistake uh they, they might not tell you but <laughs> <laughs> so course, i mean they all have. I, I always tell people when we're doing this when we're doing the apology i always got to apologize to the women's soccer team at fairfield because I just, I just drilled them into the ground, Yeah, you know, without remorse. So, but I've learned from that. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those things I think, I think, you know, we had the golden age of the strength and conditioning profession. And I think right now we're, we're shifting to that next level of our profession, hopefully. Well, what, what also going back to like fear, what scares the shit out of a lot of them now is that the requirement of validity is becoming more pronounced. Why are you doing that? It used to be, you know, no one was doing anything. So the fact that we were doing something and we're doing it in an organized fashion and we're tracking metrics around it, those were all the next steps of, wow, my guy really knows what he's doing. I'm, you know, well, now that level of validity is getting even higher. Like, how does it correlate? How are you contributing towards robustness? How are you contributing towards injury mitigation and weight classification sports? How are you contributing towards, um, weight management and mitigating from uh, from other things that we thought was normal, right? Like if someone's doing hypertrophy work, uh, you don't really want to do hypertrophy work in a weight cutting sport when you're eight weeks out from a fight. Um, 
the same thing if someone is doing hypertrophy work. It's like, well, we're cold tubbing right after. Well, why would I want to do something that mitigates hypertrophy for recovery right after I did the hypertrophy work? It's like we're starting to have to validate a better why on why we do shit, not just, well, I saw that, you know, so and so ex Navy SEAL cold tubs every day. Well, so and so ex Navy SEAL is not trying to put on 30% of lean mass in the next seven months. So, you know, they're starting to have to put a little bit more of a what and a why behind what they're doing um, instead of, you know, we, we, we lean on this, what's the old quote, um, industry standard. It's an industry standard. It's like, well, we're not the industry. We're one microcosm of sport. You know, the, the 30 kids we have on the soccer team here, those 30 soccer players out of 7 million globally um your context has to be or, or sorry your reasoning has to be a little bit more fitted for what your context is and who you're dealing with but if there was another one outside of leadership and and um and evaluation it's uh it's the idea of retention you know i think that idea has been preached for a long time i can remember when i first started out one of the best challenges i thought about why i wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach was the fact that i got told over and over again like well you know figure out what plan b is because you know most of these guys they don't retire as a strength coach they go they do something else they go sell equipment they go and they uh they become a professor they go and teach they you know the high school pe teacher whatever um so just think about that and i took that as a challenge like what Hell no. I'm retired. When I retire, I'm going to be like, I'm done. I'm turning in my last 90 days. I'm a strength and conditioning professional. I'm done, you know? Um, and so I kind of took that as a challenge. Well, then as I've gone through this thing and really looked at every time someone either taps out or retires or moves on or what, you know, whatever they do, um, really taking a deep look at, at why, what was it? What, what brought their endurance to an end? Um, was it truly retirement or was it exhaustion with bullshit or was it mismanagement? Um, was it work-life balance, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And I've really tried to insulate myself in those areas to better prepare myself because I want to be there for the long haul. I want to, when I'm 66 or whatever, and I say, I want to hang it up. I, that means I want to hang up my coaching shorts. Not that I want to move on and go be a salesman. Now I got shit I want to do. I got things I want to hunt. I got places I want to climb and go see like, you know, People are like, I don't know what I would do when I retired. I would be so bored. I mean, I got, I got so many hobbies waiting on the back burner. They're like, come on, bro. When is it going to be? When are you going to retire? Um, the day I retire, I'm like, the list is long. What's, when are we going to do these other things? But um, the idea of retention, I think, one, the evaluation piece will contribute to that because evaluation not only shows critical avenues for improvement, but it shows Report, it improves rapport by the pats on the back. It shows where you've excelled. It also is a metric of growth. It can show where you've grown, where you've improved, where you've expanded off. The things that I speak on today, I wasn't born with that shit. I was, definitely wasn't spouting it out when I was fresh out of grad school in 2004. Um, that takes experience. It takes conversing with other coaches like yourself. It takes exposure to challenging coaches, exposure to challenging athletes, exposure to challenging sports um and scenarios you know 2007 Azerbaijan and Greco you know that kind of stuff that's weird stuff that stuff builds up your your toolbox your immune system for being able to handle coaching situations and so um in terms of retention when we do those review processes you're given some validation to all those experiences all those time sacrifices all those research projects all those awkward phone calls asking for advice on certain areas or asking for an expert to share some of their IP with you around a particular area. Um, and then the other side of that retention idea is, have, you know, a lot of people say, if you want to retain someone, you either promote them or you give them a raise, right? which is true. That helps. There's no doubt that that definitely helps. I don't think that it always fulfills. So we want to fulfill someone. You've got to have at least enough of your finger on their pulse throughout their career to know where are their interests at? What drives them? Their, their number one interest might not just be lifting weights all freaking day. Like their number one interest might be a caveat to that, you know, some kind of small catalyst to that, but they might have a deep interest into recovery or a deep interest into uh, administration or a deep interest into, you know, some other small part of this whole sport thing. 
And so when you can find that, now I can provide avenues of true professional development, avenues that are professionally developing for that individual, not just, I want everybody to learn weightlifting. So we're all going to a USA weightlifting course this weekend. Everybody get ready. I'm, I'm renting the van. We're going to ride together. That's not professional development. That's a professional mandate. A professional development would be, what are your professional interests? Where are you at on your professional ladder? Let me help you get one rung above. That's, that's what that is. And so when you have a management style that cultivates that type of environment, um, retention is automatic. You don't have to think about it. I'm being cared for. I'm being nurtured. I'm being educated. I'm being supported. I'm being included, which is huge. Um, I think the other thing is being a conduit for those to be able to communicate with what you know people are perceived to be outside of their communication realm. So when our AD is around making sure that our most entry level employee not only meets them, but has an intricate conversation, if that means I got to distract them for 20 minutes, you meet this person, know where they're from, know where their family's at, why their parents are proud of them because they're at Texas A&M coaching full time. Like that, that stuff is important. Now they're included. They're inclusive. They're a part of the club. When they're just a hermit or a recluse that's down in their office, and they're only in their office outside of a time when they're working with the team on the floor. No one is, no one is, no one feels a part of the group. No one feels a part of the tribe, a part of the community around that. I've actually asked our administration here. I'm like, can we eliminate the word department? Can we just stop calling them strength department, ATC department, academic department? Can we come up with some, a community, an ecosystem, whatever you want to call it. But the second you name it a department, automatically you're saying that's a siloed separate thing. It is a, it's a, it's its own little asterisk, right? Whereas we're trying to get people here to, to act more as part of a community. When you look at research around happiness, um, and there are, there's books and there's research papers on happiness. Like they actually have metrics around what makes a society or makes people happy. And one of the biggest things is communal integration, whether it's church, sport, car wash, we do a fundraising car wash, Boy Scouts, you name it. Those type of affiliations contribute directly to happiness. Those that are not as much or that are on the fringe or on the outskirt, you don't see the same metrics around happiness. And they even go back to like tribes, people with no, um, or, or uh, you know, societies that have no like modern, you know, no modern communication tools, no TV, no transportation, but the level of happiness score is through the roof. Well, it's because they hunt together. They wash clothes together. They cook food together. They do everything together. And so every, that, what that does is regardless of the hierarchy, the, the lowest level, you're still cooking dinner with the chief. And so there, there's a sense, there's a communal sense to that. We're the same way. Like it, when you have the uppity ups that are like, ah, well, that's an entry level strength coach. I don't need to talk to them. That's okay. They can still exist. I'm just going to be the asshole that makes sure they spend 10 minutes to talk to them. I think that's important. I think that's important from a, again, it trickles down into that whole retention model or idea of a retention model because someone feels included. So I think retention, most of the time, if you really drill down to it on why someone left or bounced early or whatever the case is, it has to do with the fact that at some point they were neglected, whether they were neglected early and it burned them and they may have lasted for a while, but everyone's endurance has that fuse has a, has a link to it. It's going to burn out at some point. And so whether it's immediate or it's 10 years down the road, they either got burnt um, or they're just repetitiously neglected to the point where they're like, I'm fed up with it. I can't, you know, I'm good. I'm going to go be a mechanic or do something else. Coach, um, I, I hate to do this to you. We said it, we should have set it aside. <laughs> <laughs> we got it. Part two has got to happen soon because yeah, yeah. I can tell hey, you, I, I've, I've tracked, you're I've just tracked warming up right now. Like, you know, I, I can tell you keep going. <laughs> so, this is totally okay because I gave you the heads up, like, man, when we get going, we'll, we'll go. So <laughs> I totally understand. And, and I'm always willing to chew through these kind of conversations. Uh, I hope it encourages other people to have these conversations. Um, and I hope that, uh, that uh, needles get moved. That's the whole end game for me. It's, uh, it's not that I, like, it's not like I'm in love with college athletics. It's, I would love to be a small drop in the bucket and I'm moving things forward in terms of how we provide services. Coach, tell everybody where they can uh, follow you or get in contact with you, socials or uh, any kind of contact info. Sure. Yeah. Uh, social media on uh, Instagram, it's bobo.sandoval. 
Um, and then on, I don't, I'm not super active on Twitter. I'll retweet some things and, and, but I don't really write a whole lot on there. They're, they're a little bit, they love the cancel culture side of things. So, um, but I, I do have one. It's only strength, O-L-Y strength um on there and then i'm on facebook as well look me up i don't you know i don't put up too many restrictions on on that kind of stuff um dm me i might be slow sometimes to get back to you but i i really do i'll go to the grave feeling terrible if i don't get back to someone um so i, I definitely will make the effort to do that it just might take me some time sometimes sometimes it's quick sometimes it's like oh coach i just messaged you a minute ago that was amazing <laughs> i i can't promise that but it's pretty cool when it happens well, Coach, thank you for your time, man. It was great meeting you. And, uh, I mean, like I said, I wish we had more time because this has been excellent today. Oh, there, sure. definitely, there definitely will be a round two <laughs> and a round three. I don't know when. It's got to be between you haunting and going to UFC fights and spending time with your lovely bride and awesome, awesome children. So, I mean, we're yep. going to make it happen. I, I, I mean, I'll stalk you like you stalk an elk. <laughs> you're, you're good at that. You're good at that. I'll tell you this. We're, we're definitely settled in now. It's much, easy, much easier to get a hold of me now than in the last couple of months, so I apologize for that. But you, it will definitely be easier the next go-round. You guys say the word, and we'll make it happen. Awesome. Thanks for checking us out today. Listen to us on Spotify, YouTube, Google, Apple Podcasts. My name is Chris Schrader. My name is Mark Spellman. Bo, always a pleasure to talk with you. I always take a lot away every time we talk for those people. That had the opportunity to listen to us. I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. As always, all my best. God bless and peace. Peace.